Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear Adrian Bain. And I realized in that moment that I am not into BDSM because I don't like the feeling of being horny and horrified at the same time. <laughs> That and more. But before that, I just want to say the summer is on the way, folks. So you need your summer reading. There is no better book for it than The Risk Book. The Risk Book has 37 different remarkable, jaw-dropping, unforgettable true stories from the podcast, but reworked, rewritten for the page. They take on a whole different life in book form. You are going to notice all sorts of different layers and levels to the stories. There's interviews with the authors. We have people like Michael Leon Black and T.S. Madison, Mark Marin, Aisha Tyler, Jonah Ray, Lily Taylor, Paul F. Tompkins, A.J. Jacobs, and Dan Savage are in the book. There was a fan who just wrote into us who said she keeps it in the bathroom because, you know, they are their bite-sized stories. There's 37 different stories, so they're kind of easy to come back to and perfect as a gift for friends. I mean, these are incredible stories through and through. Your friends are going to want to come back and talk to you about the stories. Risk is known for that, for bringing people together. We have a lot of Risk couples out there, people who grew closer and became partnered, (laughs) listening to Risk together. So look for the book wherever books are sold. Give us a good review on Amazon. You know, we haven't sold enough copies yet for our publisher to be convinced they should give us a sequel. And we really, really want to do a sequel because there's so many more incredible stories that we would love to see in book form. So keep spreading the word about that Risk book. It's at theriskbook.com. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Ramsey Lewis behind me now. And this is the best of Risk 16. (laughs) We had so many amazing stories that I wanted to include on a best of episode this time around that we're putting out two at the same time, 15 and 16, and they are both super loaded. The best of Risk episodes are perfect for sharing. In fact, they're the way that most people first hear the show is that a friend says, hey, check out this best of episode, because they're such great representations of what we're all about. And to start off this compilation, we're going to hear three stories in a row now. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Walter Zimmerman. Now, the story you're going to hear from Walter is also in the Risk book, you know, a, a reworked version for the page. It's called Asking and Telling. But before that, we're going to hear a very bizarre story by Moloch Masters. And before that, we're going to hear a story that it, it, it was one of the most unique things that's happened during a Risk Live story. You will hear something happened during the telling of this story. Now, the story is told by Adrian Bain, who you can find at strangersabroadpodcast.com. Very popular podcast she has about traveling. And here she is now. Now, the title of her story is a warning about the contents of her story. This is Adrian Bain with a story we call There Will Be Blood. guys um i have a question for the uterus owners in the room um have you ever felt so lonely that you thought your cop ud was your best friend no i'm not alone on that one too okay that's fine uh okay so i when i was 25 i moved to new york and i was guessed it lonely uh this is a hard city and i didn't really know what i was doing at the time I had a few friends here, but I I was working at like a jewelry shop and I had this little passion project. It was a podcast I was working on. It's called Strangers Abroad. You can download it on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing with it at the time. Um, But I had a few friends here and about a month or two into moving here, we went out to a party in Williamsburg and that was the first time that I heard Jose's voice it was like this deep rumbling like like hearing a thunderstorm off in the distance and he had this very like 90s Alec Baldwin vibe and I was like I want to go talk to that so we go up to each other and we start talking and he just has like I'm very sensitive to voices hence like the podcast and he just has this voice where he could read the encyclopedia to me and I am wet by Albuquerque like (laughs) I was into it. And so he, you know, we start chatting and he used to be an editor of a magazine and we're into psychology and writing and all these things. I'm like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. And by the time that the party is over and we are the last ones out, I knew what our wedding cake would be. (laughs) 
It was going to be chocolate with a white frosting and raspberry. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, we go out on a few dates for like a month or so. And I think we hook up once. And every date is just like awesome. And we're really, really getting along with each other. And it's just like such good chemistry. And we go out to the movies one night. And then we go back to his place. And he, he sits me down. And he's like, hey, I need to, I need to tell you something. I'm like... 15 years older than you and I think we should be platonic and I was like oh the pain of that that disappointment fortunately distracted me from calculating the age difference between him and my father um but before I could like really think about it too much he was like but you know I just I'm kind of looking for a woman who's like a little bit older and like wanting to settle down sooner and you're a millennial and um and which isn't wrong so he's like but you know I think we do have like such good you know chemistry together and I I want to keep hanging out and you know we both are writers you know you could help me with my stuff I could kind of mentor you and I could help you with your podcast and I was like okay yeah I'll settle for that like that's okay yeah that's cool um not what I wanted but okay that's cool so our relationship started evolving in really interesting ways where, you know, we would spend the afternoons working on his stuff because, like, he had real deadlines. And by the time we would get to my podcast, we'd both be pretty tired. So we would go to his little apartment in Brooklyn and we would, like, take a break and we'd get in his bed and we would Netflix and... That's it, just Netflix. (laughs) And I would fall asleep and we would kind of have these platonic sleepovers and we would wake up the next morning not spooning but like cusping each other like feeling like a lot of back of the knee heat and we would kind of fall into the rituals that you do when you are you know when you wake up with a lover we would talk about our dreams and maybe do funny voices and get dressed and you know we would often go out to cafes and like start working on our writing and stuff and there was this one day where we were doing a little banter with the barista because we just liked flirting with people and she was like you guys are so cute and he goes oh she's not my girlfriend which is which is not what I wanted to hear at the time but I knew that Rome wasn't built in a day. And, and <laughs> you know, I would just have to be a little bit more patient. So I started doing more. Like taking his mail out for him or cleaning his room. being just like an overall emotional atlas for like 40 plus years of issues but my real friends at the time were like what the fuck are you doing cleaning a 40 something year old's apartment and he's not eating your pussy out like what is going on I was like well yeah I can't really but I just I had this dream I just I that we would have this little writer's cove in the Hudson Valley and we would make omelets every morning with our chickens like I wanted that 
I really wanted that. Until one day, I go over to his apartment and we're going to work on like a video for one of his writing courses. I step into his apartment, he's got a roommate and it's, you know, I step into the living room dash kitchen dash yoga studio dash writing studio dash whatever because we live in closets in New York and his bedroom is like attached to it and it's just really one giant room with a little divider and his roommate's room is too. The right, and um, we're supposed to film a video. So I had written a script, and he takes a look at it, tosses it aside, and starts to think that he's Wayne Brady from Whose Line Is It Anyway, and just starts improving. And it's so bad. It's so bad. And we're doing like take after take after take. And I'm like, no amount of UCB classes can fix you. <laughs> And he can tell that I'm getting a little tense. You know, that I'm like, oh my God. So he's like, okay, uh, you know, I heard about this one little trick where since we're only being videotaped from like the shoulders up, what if we, uh, what if we just took our pants off just to like play, just to like ease tensions? <laughs> and I'm like, I see what the trick is. <laughs> but like, yeah, I'm going to take my pants off. So I take my pants off, and we're sitting on the couch. Thigh's not touching, but again, like a lot of thigh heat. And we do we do a take, and it works. It, like, actually works. We only have to do it one more time. I was like, great, this is done. This is over with. I'm done with this. Let's reward ourselves. Let's watch some Rick and Morty. So I get up. I'm disappointed I didn't wear cuter underwear, and I turn the lights off. And I sit back down next to him, and we start watching. And now, just a... Side note, I'm not like a super traditional girl. Like, I don't need chocolates or flowers. But a kiss would be nice before you start finger blasting me. And all of a sudden, he's just like hand, hand, hand. Like, no seduction whatsoever. But I'm like, well, okay, it's happening. Like, it's happening. I'm not going to be upset about this. So he scoops me up. He throws me to the bed. We get, And it's just like... He, we're just like two squirrels running up a tree together. We're just like, it's four months of sexual tension. And so finally, after about like, after about like 15 minutes, he gets this weird like panic, like, oh God, I didn't lock the door. Can you just get up and, and lock the doors just in case my roommate? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. So I, I get up, I flick on the lights. I look back at my conquest and I've never seen so much blood. <laughs> I have never seen so much like you know the scene from The Shining <laughs> where the doors open and it's just a river like it looks like we had and he jumps up and I don't know if you've ever seen like a lot of blood on a living body before but it's horrifying like it looks like a haunted house should have hired him to just be a naked man running around covered in blood like it was so oh my god it was so scary so he jumps up we look at each other and then we look at our own bodies and then we look at the bed and then we look at our and he's not screaming and I'm not in pain so and I realized in that moment that I am not into BDSM because I don't like the feeling of being horny and horrified at the same time 
so after a minute, he breaks the silence and he goes, I'm going to take a shower. <laughs> I was like, okay. So he goes into the bathroom. He turns the shower on. And I look at it and I'm like, it's not, it doesn't look like, because I'm not early. And he screams. And he shouts from the bathroom, your copper IUD. lacerated my penis my copper IUD was setting the boundaries that I wasn't able to do my copper IUD was not having his nonsense she was like a lady praying mantis decapitating her lover's post coitus she was being the best friend that I needed because she was preventing me from making all the bad decisions with men that not even my real friends could do. She was not having it. But me, I was mortified. I was like, what is this like power inside of me? I have no control. Like, all I wanted to do was get laid. <laughs> and so he runs in. And he's like, we need to go to the hospital. And I'm like, yeah, let me just wipe this Game of Thrones episode off of me. So I run into the bathroom and and I jump into the shower. I'm just washing all this blood off of me. And I'm like, wow, this is what it looks like to have filmed Psycho, only I'm the stabber. And so... You know, I just, I take a moment, I take a little towel and I stand in the tiny hallway and I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck? I just need to like breathe for a second. And then um, I had this weird feeling like day two on your period where it's really heavy and you just feel like a chunk of it come out of you. Well, I had that feeling. And then he turns around, he's like, hey, can you clean up the blood in the hallway? And I look down, and I'm bleeding his blood. Someone else's blood is coming out of my body, which is something I do on a monthly basis. But when it's someone else's blood, it's just, it's just not as empowering. But anyways. So I I have to find a pad, and he's like, we need to go. And I'm like, I need to take care of myself, too. So we find some semblance of clothing. I throw something on, and we jump into a cab, and we tell him where to go. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, how could this have happened? I was like, hey, I have fucked men who are much bigger than you and with more aggression, and this has never happened before. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. And I was like, what about you? Did you not feel anything? And he's like, well... I felt a poke. I was like, a poke? A poke is like, hey, we're closing soon. It's time to wrap up. Hey, like, you should never feel something so hard in, like, the softest place. Like, what do you mean? A poke is like, and he was like, well, I I wanted to, you know, finish. I was like, oh, my God, men are single-celled organisms. Like, they could be getting their dick sawed off, but the chance that they could come, oh, it's kind of worth it. (laughs) So 
I'm just like, what? The, so we get out of the, we get out of the cab. <laughs> we tip the cab driver. <laughs> and, because he's got a lot to clean up. And... <laughs> Hey folks, this is Kevin. Let me explain what happened at this particular point when Adrian was sharing the story that night in New York. One of the members of the audience sitting close to the stage fainted and it turned out fine. Uh, the audience was super, super helpful. We were able to, you know, get him some juice and get him up and had an EMT arrive to take him away and make double, triple sure he was totally okay. This is the third time someone has fainted at a risk live show. I know one of the times, we don't know what it was all about, but two of the times there was blood in the stories and you know that's just the thing is the risk part of the risk of listening or attending the live shows is that if you're squeamish those bodily fluids they do have a way of showing up in stories because of the way that they show up in life so anyway let's get back to the story you can hear how we handled it from there okay <laughs> Are we, is, is everything okay with them back there now? It looks like they're getting help back there now. Um, okay. <laughs> Should I go on? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah, we'll get that situation figured out. We're good, we're good, we're good. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Whew, there's nothing like scaring men. <laughs> So we go into the hospital. (laughs) Sending good vibes. Sending good vibes. So we get into the hospital. And we look like an odd couple because he's holding himself like a G. And my, I, I'm walking in bow-legged because I don't want my thighs to touch. And we get up to the receptionist and she's like, hi, how can I help you? And we explain the situation and she just kind of like casually writes us down like it's her third last rated penis of the day. And we sit down. And then finally the doctor comes in and takes us in and and he gets us all settled and he lays him down and the doctor leaves for a second and he reaches his hand out and I take it, but it just, it feels like an obligation. And I was kind of tired of cleaning up his mess. So the doctor comes in and, and he starts talking to me and he's like, let me just assess your relationship like you know how long have you been together like has this ever happened before and I was like oh he's not my boyfriend no 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 he's not my boyfriend which is probably not what he wanted to hear at the time because I realized that the love that I was so craving from him 
would have to come from within. Thank you so much. I was hooking up with a girl late one night. Nothing too serious, but man, it felt nice. Except for a poke that I felt once or twice. And then suddenly, on came the lights. A serious penile gash. A penis gash. It made my life blood splash. A penis gash. Need medical help in a flash. A penis gash. Please fix my penis gash. about 14 years old and I'm laying on the floor even though I'm 14 I'm still afraid of monsters under the bed so I sleep on the floor that way the monsters can't be underneath the bed I share my bedroom with my sister she sleeps in her day bed next to mine her day bed has little porcelain hearts all over it that rattle whenever she moves We have a small vanity that's covered in fake gold plate. I can see the moonlight reflected off of the vanity across the way from me. I can't sleep. We have a fan going to create some white noise because the house makes a lot of creaking sounds at night. I have a bed sheet hanging across the room to give myself some privacy and the fan is blowing the bed sheet back and forth I wish I could just fall asleep and get on with the next day that's when I hear something a thump and a drag it's in the living room my heart speeds up my fingers clench my muscles knot up I don't know what it is. Everyone else is asleep. And then I hear it again. And it's closer. But it's in the living room. It's not my problem. It's still far away. My dad will get it. Whatever it is, my dad will get it. And then I hear another thump. And another drag. And I think, oh my gosh, what is that? What could be making that noise, and why is it coming this way? Another thump, and another drag. And another thump, and another drag. And it's getting closer and closer, and now it's it's in the kitchen. I can't move. I'm too afraid. I can't move. It's just scaring the crap out of me. And my dad isn't waking up, and my mom isn't waking up, and my sister isn't waking up. No one else is awake. It's just me and this thing, whatever this thing is, and it's still coming towards me, and I can't move. I'm too afraid to move. All I can do is lay there and look and wait, and it gets closer 
A loud thump and a loud drag. I can feel its presence, and it's very close. And I know that it's going to be in my room. I can't move, and I just scream at myself, move, do something, and I just cannot move. I can't look away. I can't do anything. And my heart, it's beating so fast. Thump. Drag. It's coming closer, and I can't do anything about it. But I see a silhouette up against the vanity. It's spiky black hair with twigs sticking out of it. A thump and a drag. It's down here on the floor with me. It's coming very close. It's in my bedroom. I want to look away. I want to run. I want help. But I can't do anything but lay there and watch as I see a pale white hand. So pale and so white it's almost blue. Reach out from the darkness and land right next to me. It looks like the hand of a corpse. It looks like it's covered in boggy water. Thump. And I hear the dragging sound. I can see the torso of a body dragging along the ground, coming right towards me. He looks like a corpse. Like a teenager that's dead. Someone who died at the same age as me. He has no legs and just one arm. His severed limbs are nothing but nubs. All he is is a torso and one arm. The thump is him smacking the ground, and the dragging sound is him bringing his body along with him. And the moonlight illuminates a face. A face that looks like something that has just come out of the depths of a swamp. Face with no eyes. I cannot look at his face. If I look at his face, I'm going to die. This is death, and he's here for me. My heart is beating so fast. I can't move, and I'm so afraid, but I just can't help myself. I have to look. I look into his eyes. And I know that I'm about to see death. But he doesn't have eyes. Instead of the flesh that should be there, it's a deep, dark hole of nothingness. Dark, empty sockets. There is nothing in his head but pitch black darkness. I can feel the gravity pulling me into that darkness. And he's looking at me with these empty eyes. And he opens his mouth. He lets out a gut-wrenching scream. But he doesn't make a sound. And as he's screaming, I can feel my body go numb. It starts with my feet. My heart is beating so fast, I think to myself, I'm dying of a heart attack. It goes up my legs. I think, I'm dead, because I looked at him. Up to my stomach, up to my shoulders, this is what I get. And then I'm gone. I can't feel anything at all. I can't see anything anymore. I just see static. 
like on an old television. And then I'm floating. I think to myself, I'm dead. This is it. I don't exist. And then I stop floating up. And my vision comes back. I can see myself laying on the ground. I just look like a lump of clay. I don't look like I have any blood pumping through my body at all. I think, I gotta get mom and dad. I gotta tell them that I'm dead. (laughs) So, I float into the living room. I can hear the clock ticking. Underneath the clock, I see a scythe. And I think to myself, we don't have one of those. And I can feel a cold presence next to me. I look over, and in my father's chair, I see the end of everything in a black hooded cloak, but he has no physical form. I am so scared. This is too much for me to deal with. I just want my mom and dad to help me. I need their help. I can't do this alone. So, I float to my parents' room. They have a set of double doors. And I reach out to open those doors, and my hand goes through the doorknob because I don't have a body. And I think, oh man, I need a body to open the door. I need a body to talk to my parents, and I don't have one. And that's when everything flips on me. The whole picture shifts to an underground subway. I see Asian people, well-dressed, on their way to and from work. They're all in a hurry. They're not looking at me. They don't care that I'm there. And I'm walking past these people thinking, I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that person. All these people are going to die because of me. I look around, and the neon lights overhead cast everything into a yellow tinge. I feel far away, floating, but I'm walking. There I am in a subway, carrying a heavy bag. I'm another person. And I have some objective to complete. I look around and I see a man in a white business suit with a black tie. And he's carrying a briefcase and he's talking to himself about what he needs to do. But I don't understand the language he's speaking in. I keep my eyes on my feet and I get on the train. I have this heavy bag and I set it down on a seat and I unzip it. I see switches and buttons and counters, and I think, oh, this is a bomb. I have to use this bomb, and I have been sent here to blow up this train. And there's a switch that all I have to do is flip it, and I think, I don't want to do this. I don't want to kill these people. I don't want to kill myself but I know I won't have enough time to get away. I'm gonna die in this blast too. I think to myself, 
I'm not gonna do this. I don't have to do this. Why has my life come to this? Why did things go in this direction for me? And then I hear another voice. It's another side of me. And it says, you have to do this. You don't have a choice. There's no backing out of this. You have to do it. There is no way out. I flip the switch and the counter starts counting down. And I run away as fast as I can and I feel like it's been two seconds when a blinding flash of light goes off behind me and my ears just go boom. And my ears get completely blown out. And then I feel the heat hit me. And I'm thrown forward and the blast lifts me up off of my feet and rips my scalp off from the base of my neck and tears all of my hair off. And the back of my scalp and all of my hair and all of the blood smacks me right in the face. And everything goes black. There's pins and needles everywhere. The sensation is returning to my body. Numbness and tingling, pins and needles, worse than I've ever felt before. All of that trapped energy from muscles that aren't moving just going haywire. I think to myself, oh man, I'm back in my room. But is the swamp boy still here? He could be right next to me. What if he's still looking at me? I look over and I see that he's gone. It was all over. I was back in my own life, in my own body again. Reality had restored itself. Everything was okay, but I didn't know it yet. So I got up, I threw open the double doors, and I woke up my mom and dad. And I I screamed and I cried and I told them everything that had just happened. And they listened. And they were worried. Even though they were tired. And even though they had to work in the morning, they listened. And they told me that it was going to be okay. And I didn't believe them. But they also said they were going to get me help. And they did. I don't miss the Swamp Boy, but I can see the fun side of him showing up in my room at that night. And that's why I've been going to therapy ever since I was a teenager. And it's gotten me through. My story starts in May, 1967. I was a 20-year-old enlistee in the United States Air Force. I was a computer operator, and I had just been given a one-year tour of duty 
at the remote naval air station in Keplavik, Iceland. Now, behind me in the United States, Aretha Franklin was just thinking about some re-re-re-re-respect just a little bit, and the three volumes of The Lord of the Rings were finally available in paperback. <laughs> Far away and below the equator, thousands of miles away, 500,000 Americans in uniform were fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. And there I stood, 20-year-old, skinny guy in a funny blue uniform, in the doorway of the barracks room in Iceland. Now, I have to tell you that the barracks were not like the ones you see in the movies where everybody has beds spread out for miles. It, they were individual rooms like college dorms. This is important for you to know. So I'm standing there, jet-lagged, with my big duffel bag stuffed with my uniforms and my cheap little green suitcase stuffed with my art supplies, watching my new roommates tape aluminum foil to the inside of the windows. I didn't think this was gonna pass inspection. But they told me that in May in Iceland, the sun stops going below the horizon and it gets too light at night to be able to sleep. Well, he learned something new every day and I started to unpack my underwear and put it away in the military fashion. But you know, they weren't the only ones who were blocking things out at that moment. I had been in the Air Force for three years and I had learned that the sex games that I'd been playing with my high school buddies meant way more to me than they ever had to them. And here I was, I'm on a remote military station with young Marines and sailors and fellow airmen, all in the peak of health, all with their hormones at full mast. <laughs> and you know, I mean, my roommates may have been blocking some things out, and I thought I had some protection, but I might as well have been covered in saran wrap for all of my fellow airmen. They saw right through me. They propositioned me right and left. It was really tempting, but I was terrified. I mean, we were living under the uniform code of military justice at the time, and if you were considered feminine, you were in trouble. Now, I had it in my mind that if an officer thought I was queer, he could take me out behind the barracks and shoot me in the head, no questions asked. Now, as if to sort of underscore what I was dealing with, just shortly after I got to Iceland, we heard a report from a fellow air base in Greenland, Thule Air Force Base. Two airmen there had been found having sex with each other. One of them, rather than face disciplinary action, walked off the end of a runway into the North Sea. His partner was sent to Iceland temporarily to be processed and then sent back to the United States for a dishonorable discharge. I still remember his waxen face. He never met anybody's gaze. He ate all the few meals he had there alone. I still feel guilty that I never said hello to him, but I was afraid of guilt by association. So, I was 20 years old, a computer operator. I kept my focus on my punch cards and I put out those little reports about how many rolls of toilet paper there were and how many cans of green beans, and life went on. But seasons change and the aluminum foil came down and I sort of began to need some real kind of human contact. One weekend, I was in the enlisted men's club getting a cheeseburger and watching some television, and I saw a sailor sitting at a table by himself 
with some colored pencils on a piece of paper, and he was working steadily away, and I mentioned my art supply, so I thought, well, you know, this is sort of interesting, so I went over and asked him what he was doing, and he looked up at me, and he had this thick, black, glistening hair, and these bright, bright blue eyes like an Alaskan husky, and this innocent but intelligent look on his face, and I was, oh, I'm just drawing some pictures to send home to my mom in Braintree. I'm Paul. I was thunderstruck. I just kind of plonked myself down and ate my cheeseburger and watched him draw. And all the other sailors there and the Marines were starting to get drunk and getting ready to fight each other like they always did on the weekends. So I suggested that we go back to my room where we could talk. It's more quiet. He said that was okay. So we went back and we got there and I lay down on my bunk and he sat down on a chair at the foot of the bed. You know, I don't really remember what we were talking about, but I remember is that we stopped talking, and we just started to stare at each other. We were staring at each other without flinching. We were staring at each other without pause, so openly, so honestly. And I could feel this strange energy coming up in the room. I mean, I never felt anything like that in my life. I didn't know what it meant, but it was clearly palpable. And I I don't know what happened. I mean, maybe somebody made a noise in the hall, and we both kind of woke up. He had to get back to the barracks, and I was left there to wonder, did that just really happen? And then we kept kind of meeting as if by accident, but every single time we always ended up back in my room, me on the bed, him on the chair, staring at each other as this room filled with some kind of mysterious power that I couldn't grasp. Now, at about the same time, I was in the office one day, I think it was lunchtime because nobody else was there, and I was doing one of my reports about the toilet paper and the green beans, and I decided I needed a drink of water, went around the corner, and there, leaning against the wall, writhing as though in some kind of hypnotic trance, was a sailor in uniform with his eyes sort of unfocused and his hands in his crotch, massaging the biggest erection I had ever seen, (laughs) trapped in a pair of trousers. This dark blue navy material holding this strange thing he was moving back and forth. It was like that. I mean, what do you do? I mean, guy, the uniform coat of military justice is taped on the wall 15 feet away and you're massaging your crotch in public? Please go on. So, I mean, I had to pull myself away. I had to get my drink of water. I took a long time getting back to my desk, and then I realized I was really dying of thirst. (laughs) So I went right back around the corner, and I just stood there and watched. It was wonderful. (laughs) And then he sort of realized that he had an audience, and he pulled himself away from the wall, looked me right in the eye, and walked into the men's room. And I followed him like the best puppy in obedience school. Oh, yes, I did. And he marched right up to the urinal, and he undid the buttons on his bell-bottoms and flapped them out, and out sprang the most beautiful dick I had ever, (laughs) ever seen. It was thick. It was plump. It was the dick Michelangelo would have sculpted if the Pope had given him permission. 
And he knew it. He knew it. He was fondling this thing. He was caressing it. He was giving it all the attention it wanted. And I was dancing around like the floor was on fire. And I, I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wanted to do something. And then he gave a kind of little jerk to his hips, and he sprayed himself all over the urinal. I never knew that I could be so jealous of a piece of porcelain. Then he seemed to calm right down, and he kind of wiped himself up and stuffed himself away and said, hey, yeah, my name's Steve. I'm going to be in the showers of the base gym uh, Saturday at 2. See you there. My clothes were checked into a little wire basket with a number on. I had the little number around my ankle, and I walked into this huge, white, steam-filled room full of showers, and there he was, naked, wet, soaping himself up and starting to get an erection. And in a nanosecond, we were together. We were twined around each other like jungle vines. We were twisting and turning and rubbing against each other. No kissing. No affection, nothing above the neck, all simply skin and groin. It was pretty wonderful. (laughs) And then we heard this pat, 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 and here comes some guy taking a legitimate shower. So we pulled each other apart. I mean, we, like, he stood over there, and I stood over there, and I right up next to the wall trying to hide our excitement as though anybody would be fooled by this. And this guy finished up his shower, and then we were, bam, right against each other, grinding away, and then pat, 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 some more bare feet, another guy taking a shower. And he says to me, let's go back to my room. So, in record time, we were dried, dressed, and across base in his second floor barracks room, and he was reaching up to do a little hook and eye at the very top of the door. This is not military issue, but at least the Navy understood that a man sometimes needs his privacy. We stripped off as fast as we could, and suddenly I had that Michelangelo dick in my mouth. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was wonderful. It was so satisfying. I felt so useful. I mean, if I could only do for him what I couldn't do for everyone else. I mean, you, you try to be a good Christian somehow. And it was splendid. I I didn't care with the uniform court of military justice had said. There's nothing feminine about two guys with raging hard-ons, believe me. And so I was having a great, great time. But then he pushed me away. I thought, what, have I forgotten? Am I doing something wrong? But no, no, he wanted to return the favor. (laughs) I didn't expect that, but yeah, he went down on me. But he had a sort of a strange attitude about it. He seemed sort of angry or resentful, like he was being forced to do something against his will, but it still felt fabulous. So I let him have his turn. Then we switched off back and forth, giving each other as much pleasure as we possibly could, as long as we could, but not too long, so he wouldn't want to be discovered. And then it was my turn, and I knew he was about to go over the top, and I was doing everything I could to give him the best orgasm in his life. And once again, he pushed me back. Not in your mouth. I don't want to live like that. And then I watched him spurt all over a t-shirt on the bed. (laughs) I was shocked. I mean, he might as well have punched me in the face. But it was his room. It was his dick. So I just sort of followed his example. But I, I mean, I was really disappointed. I mean, that orgasm was the reason I was there. I was there because, for me, there is something almost sacred about that male-to-male communication, that inimitable intimacy when 
two men are sharing their essences. Besides, it's really mostly just protein and fructose anyway. I knew that. I knew that when I was 13. I guess, well, okay, I got dressed and I said I'll see you around and went back to the barracks. And uh, two days later, so I didn't want to seem too eager, I went to the big main chow hall and there he was with his tray of reconstituted scrambled eggs and his bad coffee. I said, hey, Steve, how are you? And he looked right through me like I was made of ozone. Brushed past me, sat down at a table with some other sailors with his back to me. Well, my friend Paul with the blue eyes and black hair and the pictures for his mom he was on leave. And this rejection from Steve sent me plunging into a profound depression. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. One morning I passed out in the latrine. I went to the base doctor, I gave my symptoms without a sex. <laughs> and they sent me to the Air Force Hospital in Wiesbaden, Germany, where I stayed for three weeks and then was sent back to Iceland telling me that all of my problems were existential. When I got back there, Steve was there and still, I'm Mr. Rose unto him, but blue-eyed, black-haired Paul was gone. I couldn't find him anywhere. I went to all the places we used to hang out. I didn't know if he was in the hospital, if he'd been reassigned. I didn't know where his barracks was. I didn't know where he worked. I was afraid to ask. I was afraid to start going and looking for him because I was afraid that it would raise suspicions. I remembered that runway in Greenland. I didn't want to jeopardize myself or him. So in what little wisdom I had at the time, I decided that our safety was more important than that power that was in that room as we sat there staring at each other. So I finished out my enlistment. I got my honorable discharge, got my GI Bill, went to college. But you know, those two little events in Iceland really made a difference in my life. I learned there that although, try as I might, simple grappling with another guy, simple physical sexual contact, pretty gratifying, but not enough. And as much as I appreciated Stephen's gorgeous dick, what I really wanted, what I was really looking for was that vibrational power that was in the room when I was with Paul, that sense of something incredible happening for me with a man, I, I never saw his elbows, I never saw his knees, I never smelled his hair. Well, you know, I have a husband now. I have been together with him for over 30 years. We got married in California the first time it was legal. And there's really nothing wrong with my life that a live-in housekeeper with OCD wouldn't help. <laughs> but I still have to admit, I think, about that room and that powerful feeling that I couldn't understand. I still think about Paul from Braintree, Massachusetts, even though he seems to have disappeared from the face of the earth. And all I want to know, Paul, did you feel the same thing too? Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Aretha Franklin behind me now, and we just heard from Walter Zimmerman. Like I said before, that story from Walter's is also in the Risk book. Before that, we heard a story about sleep paralysis by Malik Masters. That's a condition, it's actually fairly common, where a person will feel like they're paralyzed in their bed and start hallucinating. And before that, a little interstitial song created by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, (laughs) called The Penis Gash. Our final two stories on this, The Best of Risk number 16, are two really extraordinary journeys. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Adam Strawn, who we recorded, he's in Newcastle, England. So that was a long-distance recording job that we did on that one. But first, we're going to hear from the remarkable Liz Winstead, who is the co-creator of The Daily Show and a comedian friend of ours for many years. She also created Lady Parts Justice League, a remarkable uh, activism organization. You should definitely look them up at lpjleague.org. Here is Liz Winstead now with a story we call All Knocked Up and No Place to Go. I promise you when you leave here, you will have enjoyed this show as much as any that you've ever had an occasion to see, all right? Fun. Um, so, I got pregnant the first time I ever had sex. <laughs> call it luck of the draw. Actually, call it luck of the withdrawal, because really, that's what it was. Um, I was brought up in Minnesota, Catholic. Thank you. Um, and 16. And 16's that weird age to lose your virginity because you're a know-it-all, but you don't know anything, and your hormones are raging, but you're not that smart, and you're Catholic, so you want to make sure that you're not having sex. (laughs) And then you're also just trying to mitigate your badness versus your goodness, right? And so it's constantly a negotiation when you're Catholic, and you're going to have sex. So I was like, okay... If I have sex and use birth control, I'll be committing two sins. So if I remove a sin, God won't be as mad at me. So because I'm smart and I'm 16, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to fuck. I'll remove the birth control part. Because it'd be weird to be like, I'm just going to be on birth control and never have sex. That wouldn't be a good sin. So I decided I'm not going to use birth control. Because I just figured, I can't get pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant. I'm popular. (laughs) I have pom-poms in my room. I have a future. (laughs) So 
So I have sex without birth control, uh, and then I don't get my period. And I'm like, well, clearly that's God putting it off because I have things to do. (laughs) (laughs) Then I was like, I got to find out I'm not pregnant. And it was like 100 years ago. I'm fucking ancient. This was like before there was just pee on a stick and go about your business. It didn't exist. So I was like, shit, I have to go someplace and find out I'm not pregnant and I don't know what to do. But the first thing I have to do is talk to my boyfriend. And my boyfriend was exactly what you would assume a 16-year-old hockey player with a mullet would be like. (laughs) So when I said, I think I'm pregnant, maybe, but probably not, he reacted the way a 16-year-old hockey player with a mullet would. He was like, weren't you on something? And I was like, I was on you. (laughs) Gravity, another thing. Um... And so he said, well, you're on your own because I'm not fucking in this. Yeah, so I'm 16, I'm Catholic, I am for sure think I'm probably not pregnant, but I feel sad and I feel freaked out and I feel like I don't know what I'm going to do because i got to find some place to find out if I'm pregnant. And I can't go to the doctor that I delivered me. And then I just feel like shit, right? I feel like shame that I had sex and I don't know what to do. And I, I'm literally panicking and I get on the bus and I see an ad on the bus. Between the we treat feet ad and some carpet cleaner, there it was. Free pregnancy tests, choices, options. And I was like, yes, this is clearly a sign from God because I'm busy. And there's no phone number, there's only an address. So I have to go there. And it said, come anytime, walk-ins welcome. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go. It was called the Southside Life Care Center. I'm like, I'm in. So I take the bus to the Southside Life Care Center, and it's spelled care with a K should have been a sign (laughs) I walk in and up the steps and it's a it looks like a house right it doesn't look like a doctor's office it looks like a house which I find warm at first I'm like oh this is great it's a house I'm gonna go in and I go and it felt very comfortable you know there was like one of those red plaid couches from the 70s and round coffee table with like literature on it that well not literature like books like pamphlets about what a whore I am but you know (laughs) that it felt like I looked around you know I like oh it had the the thorn painting like we had at our house you know did you guys I don't know if you brought up Catholic but we had a picture and it was you plug it in and it's a throbbing heart that bleeds And those praying hands that are bronze and mounted to plywood. You know those hands that are like, like to help you, can't. (laughs) And and it 
feeling okay to feeling kind of weird. Like, I wish there was at least like one, like, human body, anything, <laughs> anywhere. And then I just kind of got nervous. And but I, I was gonna wait, and I saw a thing on the table that said, uh, "Go into the bathroom." Uh, and on the back of the of the toilet will be a cup for you to pee in. Leave it there, and somebody will be out to see you shortly. So I was like, okay, medical instructions. So I was trying to find the bathroom, and uh, I couldn't identify it right away because it was hidden on the on the door was the footprints poem. You know that poem where it was Jesus, and you know I, there was two sets of footprints, and then one because I was carrying you and. <sighs> Magic. So I f- opened it and realized it's the bathroom, and I peed and I left it there and I waited and waited and looked around and freaked out until the doctor appeared. From the same door that I went to the bathroom, I guess there was a door behind that door, I don't know. <laughs> But out came the doctor. And it wasn't until I realized, you know, it wasn't a doctor. I mean, she was wearing a lab coat, but really anybody can, you know, the Lancome counter, they have a lab coat. So, um, <laughs> but she walked out in the lab coat and she's carrying a big book and she sits me down and she says, I have the test back and they're positive. And I was like, yes, you know, thinking positive for me because I have things to do because I'm popular Um, and she says well I'm glad you're happy because you're going to have a baby and I was like I can't oh my god I went there to talk about abortion and I'm Catholic so I want her to bring it up so she's got a book I'm assuming it's the abortion book and so she says well I've got this book and I was like yes she opens it up, and the first page is that mangled fetus picture that you see outside of every clinic, that there's one mangled fetus picture that has been taken in the history of the world, and every single one of them has it. So I look at the picture, and I look at her, and she says, this is the size of your baby now. And then she turns the book, and there's literally a picture of a six-year-old kid on a bike. And I'm like, is all of this from my pee? You got these pictures? <laughs> like, I'm 16, but I'm not an idiot. <laughs> so I just keep thinking about the sign that's on the bus that said choices, options, right? And so I said, so, so um, can, can we talk about my choices? And she said, oh, of course. Uh, your choices are you can carry the child to term and raise that baby. And clearly, I'm not connecting with that one. (laughs) And she says, or you can carry the child to term and give it up for adoption. I'm like... (laughs) And she's not saying it. So I have to say it. And I was like, what about abortion? And she stared at me with these steely eyes, and she said, don't you know? Abortion's against our law. Okay. 
This is 1979. She said abortion's against our law. What do I hear? The law, right? So now I'm totally freaked out because I think that I'm asking her to commit murder with me. I'm feeling completely freaked out. I don't know what to do, but I feel really scared. And so I said, um, I, I think that I, I don't know what I want to do, so can you, um, can you give me time? Do I have time? She goes, you have all the time you need. And I said, I, okay, um, I, think I, I think I need time because my boyfriend isn't going out with me anymore and I'm just not ready to be a mother. And she says, those are things you should have thought about before. And I didn't think about it before. I was fucking 16. And I said, I, I got to go. Because all of a sudden, it became very clear that I wasn't going to get what I needed there. And I, and I was going to the door. And right as I put my hand on the door, she looked down at the clipboard I had filled out because she didn't remember my name. She goes, just remember, Liz, your choices are mommy or murder. I got outside and I leaned against the house and I was hyperventilating because I was completely freaked out. This creepy guy had dumped me. I was pregnant. I couldn't tell my parents. I was totally... I didn't, I didn't know what the fuck to do. So I just got back on the bus and I look up and I see an ad on the bus that says abortion. <laughs> but I don't know if it's a trick. It could be a trick. Right? And I, so now I just feel gaslit. I, I mean, like, I didn't go, I feel gaslit. I was 16. But, like, that was the emotion I was feeling. So I was like, I don't have a choice. I have to go to that abortion place, and I don't know if I'm going to get another fakey Macy's counter person again. <laughs> but I have to go. So they had a phone number. So I went to a pay phone, because I wasn't going to call from my parents' house. And... Um, I call and I said, can I make an appointment for an abortion? <laughs> and they said, yes, you can. You have to come, when would you like to? And I was like, tomorrow? <laughs> and they're like, well, we don't know if you can have an abortion tomorrow because we don't know how far along you are, but you can make an appointment and come and talk to us. And I said, about abortion? And they were like, yes, we perform abortions. And I was like, those are the words I needed to hear. So. (laughs) So I I went down to the place, and it was an independent abortion provider who are, uh, if you don't know a lot about how abortion care works, you probably know a lot about Planned Parenthood and very little about independent providers. Planned Parenthood is sort of like Whole Foods. And your independent abortion abortion provider is kind of like your your local co-op. So I went to the local co-op. And I walk in and I talk to a counselor. And the counselor says, tell me about your life. What do you want to do? What do you want to be? Do you want to be a mom? Have you ever thought about that? I was like, I've actually never wanted to be a mom. Hmm. So being pregnant probably isn't conducive to things that you think about for your future. 
And this person asked me a series of questions that could have gone either way, that could have told me, you know what, I think I want to have this kid, or reaffirming what I needed for myself. And it reaffirmed what I needed for myself. And I had my abortion, and the next day I danced in the uh, state high school dance line, third, came in third. Um, Because abortion, for me, was something I wanted and needed and wasn't a big deal. And sometimes it's not, right? In fact, I I was going to say, I was wondering when I was telling the story, do I even talk about the fact that I had the abortion? Because it was not a big deal. And sometimes it's not, right? The process with which I needed to get an abortion and the hurdle I had to go through and ending up at that fake clinic was the part that was the really sort of horrible part that I had to get through. And I had my abortion, I went about my life, and 25 years later, all of these laws start happening all around the country. Like literally in 27 states, clinics are closing down. I'm somebody who throughout my career has called out hypocrisy, uh, been on the front lines of politics, didn't ever center this, walked away because I was privileged and I was lucky. And as I watched these clinics close down, I was like, I have to participate and do something about this because I got to have my life because I got to have a safe legal abortion. And so I called up Planned Parenthood um, and said, hey, um, I want to drive around the country in a van with my dogs and raise money for you. And they were like, we should call the police (laughs) because that sounds bad. Um, And then we talked a little further and they go, okay, that sounds cool. And what started out as a six-week tour has ended up me going to over 200 clinics to... Not only to raise money, but to visit the workers. Because one thing I discovered is that when you work in abortion care, oftentimes people are abandoned. People have their procedures and they leave. People have to drive home a different way from work every single day because they provide abortion. They sometimes can't get someone to mow their lawn or to fix their fence or to do any roofing. So... Four years ago, I formed an organization called Lady Parts Justice League. And we... We're comics and actors and writers who drive around the country in a van (laughs) and do shows like this. And then afterwards, we actually do talkbacks with the providers in that community and the activists. And our audience, just like this, learns about what those clinics need. And then their activist base grows. And I was doing a show in upstate New York in a rural clinic and the physician came up to me afterwards and he said, Liz, one of the reasons that I love that you do this is because I see 40 patients a day and 30 of those patients from the time they find out they're pregnant till the time they get to me, no one has ever been kind to them. So for you to be here to show kindness to those patients when you're walking them inside and to show kindness to my staff and I because of the work we do, uh, we couldn't do it because of the stigma we felt. 
And I realized I was that person. When I, from the second I found out I was pregnant until I got to that independent clinic, no one had been kind to me. And that's why I do what I do, because I refuse to have any person who needs an abortion to ever feel like they're alone and that no one will ever be kind to them. I was sitting in my bedroom, staring at my computer screen, and I wasn't really taking in what was on the screen. I was elsewhere in my mind, and I was really concerned and more worried, apprehensive, and I just felt like a tightness inside. And I knew it was because of the email that I'd sent my parents the night before. And I was so worried about their reaction, so deeply worried about that to the point of where I couldn't go downstairs. I'd woken up and I was sitting at my computer and that's where I stayed. I did not feel comfortable going downstairs. And I just was racing through everything in my mind thinking, what's their reaction going to be? What are they going to say? And then I heard footsteps and that's when the panic set in. And the footsteps was somebody coming up the stairs. Now it could have been my mum, could have been my dad, it could have been my brother, no idea. And then I heard the doorknob go, and that's when I froze in the chair. I couldn't move. So when the door opened, my mum came in. After a long silence of us looking at each other, and me kind of looking away, she just said to me, look, Adam, don't go near your dad. Just give him time. Don't hug him. Try not to be in the same room as him. He just needs time to accept this and get over this and I said nothing I couldn't say anything I just couldn't believe what I just heard and with that she just bowed her head and closed the door so in that email I admitted the biggest secret that I'd been holding on to for my entire life was my sexuality I was coming out to my parents and it was always a struggle it was always something that I felt like I couldn't tell them but this moment of energy that just surged through when I sent the email and I thought I've finally done it I've finally done it I came out at the age of 26 I am now 31 so I waited a long time and I knew I knew for years and years and years since I was you know 11 12 but I always knew as well that it was something that it was my secret to keep I couldn't tell my parents it was something that I just couldn't share and I think to understand that point, you kind of have to go back to understand my parents and their kind of upbringing and where they've come from. So my dad, when he was younger, he was born into extreme poverty. He lived in a household where sometimes he wouldn't eat. He had rooms in his house. Some of them didn't even have carpets. Some of them didn't have beds. And I remember he told me one story one time that always sticks with me when he was so hungry one day and there was nothing in the house, nothing to eat. So he went next door to his neighbour's bin and he opened the bin lid and he raided inside and found old potato peelings. So he took them back to his own home and he fried those peelings and he ate them that night. That's how little he had. He didn't want to become a victim of that situation. He didn't want to end up living a life growing up. He didn't want to provide a situation like that for his own family. He knew he wanted to evolve from that. My mum is a different story. 
she was raised in a house of war, basically, where her parents every night would fight. And when I say fight, I don't just mean argue verbally, which was a part of it, but I mean fist fight. And every Friday night she used to tell me where her friends would be out, they'd be drinking, they'd be partying, they'd be having a good time. Her Friday nights was lying face down on her bed with her sister, with a pillow over her ears trying to block out the sound of her parents screaming downstairs. And the sounds of her dad and my granddad punching my grandmother. And that went on for hours until eventually she passed out. So when my mum and dad came to meet each other, which they met at a young age, they met at school. And I think when you level with somebody, you, you realise if you've come from somewhere of deep pain, you can sense that in other people. And I think they just connected on that level straight away. And, you know, they developed a relationship. But from that, they agreed that they've both come from households. They've come from worlds that they want to get away from and they want to create their own worlds together. They both had that joint consensus. So that's what they decided to do. Now, there's a beauty in that, in that they found each other, that they've started to create their own world. But there's also a danger in that, in that anything that they deemed is out of the ordinary, different, it was instantly rejected. It couldn't be part of their world. It was a no. And I think that's where that initial resistance came from. So as I was growing up, I remember one time I was sitting down with my mum and we were in the living room, we were watching television and we were watching an interview with Elton John and he was being fabulous as per <laughs> with his husband. And, you know, we were laughing and like we were just enjoying ourselves watching the show. But as it ended... I remember my mum just, her reaction was, isn't it, isn't it weird just being gay? Isn't that just so wrong, just being gay? At this point I was maybe 15, 16, so I knew my sexuality. And that was the first moment that I thought, wow, I can't be myself around these people. <laughs> this is going to be a secret now, and it's going to be a secret for a long time. Maybe a few years after that, when I was 18, 19, me and my dad were in the living room this time. And we were watching a UK chat show host called Alan Carr, who's openly gay and hilarious. So we were laughing and we were having a good time watching the show. And my dad's quite a big fan of his humour, so we were both laughing together. But he did something I'll never forget. And it still makes me cold to describe it now. But when the show ended... He just stood up so casually and he just turned to me and just went, yeah, yeah, that was really funny. But if it was up to me, he'd still be shot. And just nodded and just walked out of the room. As if he just said, yeah, it's a nice sunny day today. <laughs> I was dumbfounded. And my mum was in the room. She was on the other side of the room, but she was on her laptop. Just typing away, looking at something. And I just turned to her and I looked mouth open and I said did you just hear that can you believe what you've just heard and she just looked up briefly shrugged and continued typing on her laptop it was those two moments that cemented the thinking in me that I thought I, I can't be myself I can't open up I can't if that's the way he reacts to somebody he doesn't know does that mean that if I open up do I get shot do I get rejected? Or worse? So I knew this was going to be a secret I would keep for a long time. And I did. 
But when I turned 26, that was the year everything changed. Everything. It started when I just finished my dissertation, handed it in after a year's worth of work. That was that chapter done. And straight after, I met my brother in Manchester and we travelled to London. And we were going for a big video game convention in Earl's Court. And we were so excited for it. Because um, I'm a massive geek, but whatever. <laughs> so we got there. And there was a huge queue outside the building of all these avid gamers ready to go in. So excited. So we ran up and we joined the queue. And um, we could see signs outside of Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo. All of this. All this buzz in the air. People ready to go in and play new games. And as we were standing there, I was chatting. So my brother was next to me and we were talking. But my ears pricked because I heard an accent in front of me that I recognised. And it was my accent. Where I'm from is the northeast of England. I'm from a place called Newcastle. I studied in Manchester, and that's where I handed in my dissertation. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm in London, and I thought maybe it was only us that had travelled this far to go to this convention. What I didn't realise was there was other people from my neck of the woods that were there. I thought, oh, shall I say something? Shall I not? Shall I ask if he's from there? And I just thought, oh, you know what? I'm in London, I'm vibing off this excitement, whatever. So I just said, oh, excuse me, um, can I just ask, are you from the northeast of England? Are you from Newcastle area? That's the moment when I met a really good friend to this day. It's a guy called Glenn. And he said, yeah, 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 I'm from, you know, and he explained where he's from, and we were literally a half an hour drive from each other. And I was like, oh my God, isn't this surreal? Like, we've both travelled down, you know, from the, basically the same area. We don't know each other, how, how crazy. So we got on chatting, and we got on like a house on fire. One of the first things I noticed about Glenn was his confidence, but also how carefree he was. Now, he was 21 at the time. I was 26. This guy had way more confidence than me. He was so just out there. Nothing fazed him. He was up for anything. He was such just a great guy to talk to. As we kind of got to know each other on that day, we found out that we went to the same clubs as each other on nights out. We listened to the same music. We had the same taste in games, obviously. Um, so we said to each other, right, when we get back to Newcastle after this weekend's over, we'll arrange it. We'll go on a night out. We'll have some drinks together. We'll go at the same bar. We'll just have a good time. We said, yeah, yeah, sure. After we got back to Newcastle, a couple of weeks went by and he contacted me and said, hey, Saturday's coming around, it's a great rock and metal night that's on in Newcastle, do you want to come along? And I was like, yeah, like I always go there anyway. I'm surprised we never ran into each other because we both have been going for so long. That night, I went and met him at the club and we had a great time. We were catching up again, saying how crazy was that weekend that we met. I met some of his friends, he met some of mine. We just all gelled so well for a group that had never met each other before. It got to a point where it was quite regular, where every Saturday we'd go to the same club and we'd just have a great time. But it was maybe at the fourth or fifth time, so we started to really develop quite a friendship. And we'd had a few drinks, and towards the end of the night, like, things were mellowing out. And he turned to me and he just said, Adam, he said, I hope you don't feel like I'm being too forward when I ask this, but I just feel like you're holding something back. I just feel like there's something that, it's almost like you want to tell me, but you feel like you can't. And I just, I just thought, right, this is the moment he he's clicking onto something and I know the type of person he is I know he's so carefree he wouldn't give a shit I can tell somebody now this this is my moment I've got to take it I just said actually Glenn yeah there is and I just said it I said I'm gay and the words it just 
felt like a stone in my mouth and I just spat it out for the first time because it'd been in there so long and I just said I'm, I'm gay but the next words was almost I'm sorry I almost apologised to him straight after because I felt that he was going to react the same way my parents did and he looked at me and just went okay alright cool and I was like what? and he just went yeah alright he said yeah my brother's gay and I, I was dumbfounded I just looked at him like no one's given me this reaction not a single person before this is what I wanted from the people that I value so much in my life and I didn't get that I just got indifference and rejection I couldn't believe it and he said you know what Adam I knew that you were gay from the moment I met you but I felt like you were trying to convince me that you weren't and he said to me and these words will ring true for the rest of my life it's not about making everyone else happy. Your happiness is what is important. There's nothing wrong with being gay, so what? You, you don't have to apologise to anyone. And I'll never forget that. Never. It was a huge moment for me. His reaction meant more to me than he probably will ever know. And it was so casual. And I was so, <laughs> so shocked because the first thing I was expecting was just rejection. Or just indifference. I expected him to react like that, and the fact that I didn't get that reaction meant everything to me. I'm the type of person, I've always been this type of person, where I hate letting people down. I hate it. Whether it's telling a teacher, oh, I'm really sorry, I forgot my homework, to telling a friend, I'm really sorry, I can't meet up with you this night. I've got this thing, I can't, I'm really sorry. So when Glenn told me this, initially my, although I was ecstatic inside, but my mind went to this place of, yes, but my argument is, people won't be accepting. You are, and that's fantastic, but two people that are most important in my life won't accept me. So it's easier just to stay quiet and keep the status quo, to keep them happy, to keep everybody happy. And he just said to me, Adam, look, I'm going to be real with you for a moment. You're 26. You've known this for a while. Just tell them. Just do it in your own way, but just tell them. You've got nothing to apologise before. Just remember that. So I took a deep breath and I said, okay, I'll think about it. So that night I got home and I lay in bed for hours awake thinking how I would do it. How I would tell my parents that I'm gay. And I thought different ways. I thought, shall I just casually throw it out? Shall I write it down? I just everything went through my mind that night I didn't get much sleep at all so I literally rolled out of bed and I picked up my laptop and I typed it out everything <laughs> the, the subject of the email was I'm really sorry but I've got something to say so again I was apologising straight away <laughs> but at least I had that initial strength that was built up by Glenn just to say, you know what, this is it. This is the moment. This is time. I might not be able to say the words, but I can damn well write them down and send you them. <laughs> I wrote it out, and it was about a paragraph, and all it said was, Mom, Dad, I think somewhere inside you must have known, but I've been keeping this to myself for too long now, and I feel like it's suppressing who I am, and I can't do this anymore. So I just said, I'm good. I'm really sorry, but I'm gay. I hope you can accept that. I don't want things to change. I want everything just to be the way it is. I don't want to upset anyone. And that was that. 
So this brings us back to the start of the story when I woke up and I didn't go downstairs because I didn't dare go downstairs. So I turned on my computer and I sat there and I thought I'll let them come to me because I can't go downstairs knowing they've got this information about me now. After my mum initially came into the bedroom and said this to me about my dad, she took my hand and said, come on, we'll try and talk to him. And I said, what? She said, no, come on, come on, we'll go and speak to your dad. Before I could say anything, she kind of pulled me out of my chair and we walked downstairs together. My legs were jelly. I was a mess. And I just thought, I, I didn't know what to say to him. I thought it was all there in the email, just read it again. <laughs> but he was in the kitchen and we walked in and he had his back to me the whole time. He didn't turn around once and he was washing the dishes. And my mum stood next to me. And all I could say, all that would come out was just the word dad, but it was so meek, just dad. And I was fighting back tears. I thought, no, I'm not going to break down now. I'm not going to do it. I've had so much strength and finally admitting I'm not breaking down now. The whole time he spoke to me, he didn't turn around. And he just said, son, this is a decision that you've made. You've decided to be this way. That's your choice. I don't accept it. I don't want a part of it, but if you want to live your life like that, that's completely your choice. But I won't accept it. And there was a pause for a long time as he continued washing the dishes. And I watched him do it because I had, I just had nothing to say. I couldn't believe it. I looked at my mum for support and she just had her head bowed. She didn't want to go against my dad. So it was them two against me, practically. And then after a long pause, he then said, I think you've been really selfish telling us this. You know how we would react. You know how we'd feel about this. And the fact that you've dropped this on us. I think you've been really selfish. <laughs> Inside I was screaming. I was like, selfish? Fucking selfish? I've kept this to myself for years because I knew how you would react. And I said nothing because I wanted to make sure that you were happy. That you got the son that you wanted. I wasn't going to be this person that you didn't like. And I'm fucking selfish for doing that. I was irate. But my face didn't show it at that point. I was bubbling inside, but I just looked away. I couldn't say anything at that point. I knew if I exploded, I wouldn't be able to stop. So I knew I just did not want to go there. As he walked out of the kitchen, he didn't look at me. My mum reiterated the instructions that I was given. Don't try and give him a hug. Try to not be in the same room as him. Don't go near him. Just leave him, Adam. Leave your dad. So we had a couple of months of this, where he would be in the living room, I would be upstairs. He would go in the kitchen, I'd walk through the living room to avoid him. If he was in the house at certain hours of the day, I wouldn't be in. It went on like this for at least two, three months. But slowly things started to return back to status quo. And by that, I don't mean acceptance. I mean that I could be in the same room as him, that he would actually talk to me. And I thought, well, I'll take this over, making it awkward for the rest of the family. I guess I'll take this on the chin again. I don't want to put my brothers in an awkward situation. So I'll just carry on. We'll treat it like the elephant in the room, I guess. 
I spoke to my brothers about it to admit my honesty about my sexuality. I've got two brothers, an older and a younger. My older brother didn't live with us at the time, but my younger brother, Andrew, I asked him about it and I said, what do you think? He said, I don't understand why they've reacted that way. He said, I feel so sorry for you, for everything you've had to go through, for the fact you've had to keep it to yourself. But I think because, in my mind, he's my brother, and he's connected to my parents in the way that I am, so by extension, I kind of almost thought that he would react the same way. But he's so laid back, he couldn't give two shades of shit. He just, it wasn't an issue, just, okay. So my older brother, he was married at the time, and his wife, her sister was a lesbian. She was fine, completely fine. She'd grown up in a household where it's never been an issue. And my older brother, again, the most sweetest laid-back guy in the world. Everybody loves him because of how loving and caring he is. And I told him, I said, Gavin, I've got something to tell you. I need to tell you this because I'd rather you hear it from me than from somebody else in the family. And I just said, I'm Gavin, I'm gay. I've just told our mum and dad, I've told our Andrew. I need you to know now. And I need to know how you feel about that. And he just said, Adam, finally. I've waited for you to say this to me for years. He said, I've always had an inkling, but it's not been my place to say anything. I'll always love you and I'll always support you. He said, I'm so pleased. He said, I'm so happy for you. That you feel like you can be yourself now. He said, I'm so happy for you. He pulled me into a big hug. He said, I don't want you ever to worry about this. He said, you're always welcome at our house. If you ever need to get away, if you ever need a place of refuge, you're always welcome here. And that meant everything to me. Everything. That's what I wanted. That's the reaction I wanted. Not this resistance. Not this weird, let's not talk to each other reaction. Anyway, time went on with this weird normality and we kind of got back to the way things were, I guess, with my parents where we didn't talk about it, but they knew, so it was weird. But things changed again when I got my first boyfriend. So I started a new job and I met him there. And it was that kind of initial thing of where we looked at each other and we were sussing each other out. And I thought, yeah, I know why you're looking at me. And you should know why I'm looking at you. <laughs> but yeah, we got on like a house on fire and he invited me over to his and we just chatted a lot more and we started to see each other a lot more and then things just went from there until eventually we admitted, yeah, we were in a relationship. My first relationship at the age of 27. Now, my first gay relationship. I'd been with women before, trying to prove something to myself, but there was always something that was just lacking in those relationships. I never felt fully myself or fully happy but now I did now with my partner I did he comes from a different background he's been openly gay since the age of 11 and his parents were amazing they've got loads of gay friends not an issue to them for him to watch me in pain to tell him this to tell him my parents reaction was such a shock to him he didn't know that people could react like that because he had the complete opposite reaction to what I had as time went on, I started to spend a lot more time at his flat. He lived in Newcastle. I worked in Newcastle. It made sense to stay with him. So I was used to spend a lot of time there. And I thought, you know, my parents aren't daft. They're going to click on. They're going to know that I'm spending a lot of time out of the house. I'm not obviously sleeping at work. I've clearly met somebody. So I've got to tell them. And I said, look, I've got myself a partner. It's a guy. 
I'm seeing a guy. We've been seeing each other for a few months now. I'm really happy. It kind of felt like we went back to square one. My dad said nothing, but he looked away from me. My mum bowed her head, said nothing. So I said to them, through this act of courage, I know we've got a big family christening coming up. I want to invite my partner. I want you guys to get to meet him. I want to be able to introduce him to the rest of the family and I want to be able to feel happy about that. I want to enjoy that. I want to feel confident and be able to express that, that I'm in this new relationship. I'm so happy. And I want my family to know, all of my family. My dad just turned to me and he said, you want to treat this christening like your coming out party and that's not fair, Adam. I remember I raised my eyebrows and I just said, okay. I left the room and I went upstairs and my brother was in the room and I opened a suitcase and I started packing and I said to my brother, I'm done. And he said, why, why, what's the matter, what's the matter? And I told him and he said, what? I said, yeah, no. And I said, Andrew, I can't stay in this house anymore. I can't do it. Every time I talk about this, I'm going to get this reaction. I am not suppressing myself anymore. I'm done. I'm happy. I'm, I'm beyond this now. I'm living the life that I've wanted to live for so long. And I am not about to give this up. Not for that reaction. And he said, I don't blame you for reacting this way. Call me. Keep in contact with me. Don't lose contact with me. Grab my suitcase. And I walked downstairs. And my parents were still sitting there. I walked past them. Grabbed my car keys. And I just left. Didn't even say goodbye. Didn't look at them. That night I drove to my partner's. And when I got there... I think I just had a mask of sorrow just on my face. And he looked at me and he just gave me the biggest hug. And he said, are you all right? And I said, I just need to tell you what's happened. So I explained everything to him. And he said, Adam, he said, you stay here for as long as you want. You call this your home now. You're free to stay here as long as you want. So if you never want to go back, that's your choice. You stay here. And I said, oh, God, thank you so much. And he just said, I can see so much hurt behind your eyes and it hurts me to see you that way. And he said, I want to see you happy again. I said, I want to, I want to see you smile again. He said, if that means you staying here, he said, you stay as long as you want. So I did. I stayed maybe a month with no interaction with my parents, nothing. No text messages, no phone calls, no Facebook updates, no social media, nothing. I literally got up with my partner, went to work, came back to his home which I started to call my home and we did our thing we chilled we watched films we started to build our own little life together really kind of starting to understand what it was like to live together and be in a relationship it felt like that came a lot quicker than what probably it should do in normal relationships I guess but that didn't matter to me that didn't matter to him because we were happy and I was happy again and I put that sorrow behind me there was always a little bit of something at the back of my mind and it was the fact that I'd lost contact with my parents it was always there and I, it was always a moment of sadness that I guess I had to myself from time to time over that month I kept reminding myself of the way that they reacted and the words that they said and I knew that I'd made the right decision I also knew that in a week my mum's birthday was coming up and as a family every year we've always gone for a family meal on my mum's birthday it's the way it's always been and I thought, right, what do I do? Because I really don't feel like going at all. 
I miss my brothers, but I don't feel like going to see them. That night, I got a phone call off my mum when I was walking back from work. I thought, this is uncanny. I was just thinking about this. And I looked at my phone for a minute, thinking, should I answer, should I not? I know what it's going to be about. Should I answer this call? Do I reject this? Do I cut all ties and just continue living my life the way it is? Or do I extend an olive branch in hope that something's improved? So I answered, and I said, hi, Mum. And there was silence for a while, and she just, with a, almost a quiver in her voice, just said, Adam, I need to know if you're coming to my birthday. I need to know. And I could hear she was upset. She said, I can't imagine having my birthday without you being there. I can't. And this gave me a choice. This was like a fork in the road where I thought I can either go down the harsh route, cut all ties and say, I won't be there, don't call me again. Or I can try and talk things out and see if they've made any improvements, see if they've evolved, see if they've progressed in any way with everything. So I just said, look, ma'am, let me put it this way. I don't want to miss your birthday, but I feel like you're making me. You know the way you've reacted to me, you and Dad. If you keep pushing me away, what do you think will happen? I'll walk away. I'll walk away and I won't come back. And I heard her begin to sob on the phone. And she said, Adam, things have changed. I need you to come to my birthday. Let us explain in person. And I said, okay. And I thought in my mind, this is the last chance. This is the last chance. And I'm going kind of for her sake, kind of a little bit for my sake, for my brother's sake, and more of a curiosity to see how things have changed, especially with my dad. So I got home to my partner's flat, and I said, look, I've just had a phone call off my mum. And he was like, really? How are things? Is everything all right? And he looked at me, and I had a sense of determination now. I wasn't upset. I wasn't angry. I was just determined. And I told him the conversation. And I said, I... I want to go, but I want to see how things have changed. And if I get one glint of things being the same, I'm out of there. And that'll be me done. And he said to me, look, Adam, you need to go alone. He said, you need to go to that birthday alone. He said, we don't want a prisoner number two <laughs> if I came along with you. He said, you need to go to that alone and you need to do this for yourself. You know, and he said, just be strong, but you go along. He said, if you need me at all, he said, you know where I am. So that week came, the day of my mum's birthday. A couple of days before, I sent her in the post a new shirt for her birthday, and I sent her a card from Adam and Kane, not just Adam, from me and my partner. And in there I wrote, this is a gift from us both. So I was intrigued to see how their reaction would be to the card, and also the gift. I got to the restaurant, and my parents and brothers were waiting outside, and my mum clocked me, and the first thing I noticed is she had the shirt on. She had the birthday shirt on. And that was sign number one where I thought, hmm, she's making an effort here, so maybe, just maybe, but she came straight over to me. She left my dad and brothers, ran over to me and gave me a big hug. 
And she said, Adam, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much for being here. And she pulled me in closer and she whispered in my ear and she said, Look, Adam, your dad won't admit this to you, but I'm going to tell this to you now. He's been walking past your bedroom nearly every night since you've left. And he's looked in and he's just said, I really miss our Adam. I really miss our Adam. And that meant everything to me. Everything. That felt like acceptance. Felt like he knew the person that I was now and he missed me. And I thought, okay, maybe things are changed. Maybe things are different. So I walked over with my mom to meet the rest of my family. My brothers give me a big hug. But it's when I turned to my dad. That's when I was ready. And I thought, this is either the moment that will make things different or it'll break and I'll go. And he had a huge smile on his face. And he pulled me in for a hug. That's the first time I'd hugged my dad in maybe six months. And it felt like everything. He didn't say anything, but that hug said everything. And I knew, I just, I felt an acceptance, a warmth, at last. We walked in and we sat down and we had a meal and we were talking as a family and it felt nice. We were talking about how things were, how things had been. My brothers were talking about their lives and mum and dad were talking about work and how things were at home. And I thought, right, well, seems that we're all being open, I'm going to talk about my partner. So I told them about my partner, Kane. And at first I thought, right, are they going to look away? Is this the point where they turn away and say nothing? But it's my dad that turned to me and said, oh, what does he do for a living? My mum said, oh, so how are things? Whereabouts does he live? Mind blown. Blown away. It's like, oh my God, I, this, this is the conversation I've waited so long for. And I never, never thought I'd get... This is the complete polar opposite reaction to what I thought I would get. I thought I would turn up and I'd walk away. But you know what? I went for it. I told them everything. I said, this is a guy who I'm really starting to fall for. He's a really nice guy. He's really looked after me. And I think you guys will really get on with him. And they kind of agreed. They said, yeah, sounds like a great guy. We're looking forward to meeting him. And that meant everything. Again, we're looking forward to meeting him. By extension, my partner also became another secret of mine that I almost couldn't talk about. But now I could. It was all out in the open. They knew everything. And I kind of watched their reaction as they said the words, we look forward to meeting him. And I watched to see if that was through gritted teeth, whether that was hard. But it came so natural. And that was for both of them, my mum and dad. And they both agreed. And I thought, this is amazing. So it was the end of the meal... I gave everybody a big hug. As I was walking back, I got a text message off my mum as I got to my car. And she said, we really want to meet your partner. When can we meet? Tell us a date and we're there. And I thought, oh, finally. I got in my car and I was driving back to the flat that night. And the song Gods and Monsters by Lana Del Rey was on the radio. I love that song. But there's one lyric in particular that stood out that night in the song, and it's the lyric, No one's going to take my soul away. And it really hit me. And I listened to that song, and I listened to it again, and it just, it connected with me. I thought, no one is going to take who I am away from me now. People know who I am. I am 
expressing myself in ways I've never done before. But I finally feel I can be me without being judged, without being harassed, without thinking that I'm going to upset somebody or have to apologise because this is me. And no one is going to take my soul away from me. No one. So I got back to the flat and my partner was standing there with his arms folded like, well, (laughs) expecting the worst. And I told him everything. A massive smile crept across my face and I said, you'll never guess what. And I relayed the whole night to him that the party squealed at was and they really want to meet you. He was like, what? I was not expecting this at all. Like, okay. So he ran and got his diary and he was like, right, let's do this. So we looked when we were free and it was a week. Uh, so we'd met on Saturday. It was the next Saturday we were free. I said, right, why don't the four of us sit down in a restaurant and we'll just talk and we'll get to know each other. The week went by. I had a mixture of emotions about the meal again, I guess because it's still in my mind, I still thought they could at any moment just turn this on its head. They could just say one thing and just ruin this perfect moment that I've been building for for so long. But we were dressed up to the nines and we left the flat. We both looked fab. And as we were walking down the street to the restaurant, I turned to Kane and I said, look, I just want to get this out the way now. And this is the only rule I kind of want to set for the night, but I'm not bothered how they make me feel. But if they make you feel uncomfortable at any point, you tell me and we'll go. Because I'm not having that. So when we got there, we met just outside the restaurant and my mum and dad were there and we went over. I hugged my mum. My mum pulled Kane in for a big hug. My dad did the handshake and I thought, well, that's step number one. You know, he's greeting them, he's acknowledging them and he's making an effort. Maybe it's for me, but in order to make an effort, you've got to make a bit of an effort for yourself as well. And he's doing this and I noticed a change in him. So we were chatting and we said, look, should we go and get our table? So we went upstairs and I purposely sat opposite my mum. So he came, could sit opposite my dad. I purposely did that because I thought, you guys are going to talk. I'm going to talk to my mum, but I'm going to listen the whole time. So food came and we began chatting and I was just ch- catching up with my mum. I said, oh, look, your birthday last week was lovely. I'm so pleased that, you know, we came along. The food was nice. But the whole time my mum was talking, I kind of feel a little bit bad about this, but whatever. She was kind of talking, but I kind of wasn't listening because what was going on in the conversation next to me was so much more important at that point. My dad and Kane were getting on like a house on fire and that's where my attention was. So my mum was kind of getting the, uh-huh, yeah, lovely, uh-huh. She could have been telling me that the house burned down, but I was like, yeah, uh-huh, okay, wonderful, because I was too focused on this conversation that was happening. They were talking about films that they shared they were talking about music that they shared. The big thing is running. Kane's a big runner and my dad's a big runner. And they just connected on that level, talking about marathons, half marathons, times that they've made. I'm not a runner, so that didn't make a lot of sense to me. But the fact that they connected on something that they could just share and just get amongst, just oh, it was a joy to watch. Just them riff off each other like that, which I never expected. After the meal, we went downstairs and we were still talking, me and my mum, Kane and my dad behind me. And we left the restaurant. We got to the point where we were going to part ways. We were going to go back to the flat. My mum and dad were going to go back to their car and drive home. So my dad pulled me in for a big hug. 
As I gave my mum a hug, I looked over her shoulder, and I expected the handshake. But my dad pulled Kane in for a hug. I just remember looking over thinking, wow. I can't believe how far you've come. In a matter of months, not even a year. I've waited for that for so long, so long. And I know you're not hugging me right now. But you're hooking everything that means everything to me. And it was just amazing. It really was. I remember thinking, two months ago that wouldn't have happened. A year ago that wouldn't have happened. It just opened my perspective completely. That people can change. That people can see the hurt that they've put you through. But people can open the perspective when they allow themselves to. And I think in that moment they realised how important my happiness was to them, finally. One of the most important things is to never assume anything. I think they went into that thinking that it was going to be such a negative for them, that it was going to be something that they couldn't handle. But they were so wrong. In moments like that, I think in life just prove how preconceptions could be so wrong that there can be such a stall on how you can take things and how you can accept things they can put such a block on a part of life that you can miss out because you've preconceived something in such the wrong way but the fact that they pushed through that meant that they opened themselves up to this new form of happiness that they knew that they never knew about they could see their son happy fully happy fully himself and that meant the world to me. And where are things now? <laughs> My mum and dad adore Kane. They adore him. They want to see him more than me. <laughs> um, but whenever he comes over to the house, they laugh, they share stories, they talk about good times. We share stories about our time together, our holidays together, work. How just we just thrive now. And it's the polar opposite compared to how things were, how stale and stagnant things were. But I think the cherry on top of the cake, which is already a beautiful cake now, but the cherry on top is that my dad, whenever I ask him about Kane, he always says, I have a new son now. <laughs> what more can I say? Now I see No one's gonna take 
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Lana Del Rey behind me now. And we just heard from Adam Strawn. You can find Adam on Instagram at Strawn87. Before that, we heard from Liz Winstead. You can look her fantastic organization, Lady Parts Justice League, up at lpjleague.org. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Fuck yeah, give it to me. This is heaven, what I truly want.